trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, there is so much going on today. So much, in fact, that I can't carry this load by myself, so I've invited my friend uh, Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos to help bear the burden of discussing what's going on. Eric, how are you today? I'm good, my friend. Today is a very good day indeed, at least for people on our side of the aisle. Yeah, let's. In fact, I want to start. You had reminded me just before we jumped on the air here that uh, this is the New Hampshire primary today, and uh, boy, the Orange Man, despite all the stuff that's been thrown at him, looks like uh, he's he's pretty much got he he's got the catbird seat. He's kind of like a glowing orange Obi Wan Kenobi, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> like, if you strike me down, I shall only come back more powerful than ever. Well, and and I say this, and I and I think you would agree. We y- you feel equal parts of hope as well as unease because there there are some problems. Sure. Trump is not the answer to everybody's prayers, but um, I'm curious to see where the establishment goes from here because it's looking he's looking more and more like a juggernaut. And, and I wonder, yep. okay, what are they going to pull out next to try to derail yeah. him? Well, and I, I agree with you. And I also think at this point, it's gone far beyond Trump. Trump uh, is a kind of a John the Baptist figure, in my opinion. He has rekindled and reawakened a kind of an American nationalism and open contempt for this push toward a global technocratic society managed by the WEF crowd. And I don't think they can put that genie back in the bottle anymore even if they manage somehow to derail or otherwise get rid of the orange man. Yep. Well, it'll be interesting to watch, uh, you know, New Hampshire uh, kicking things off today. By the way, I didn't realize this until I got looking into this yesterday. Um, I guess there's a little bit of controversy. New Hampshire traditionally has the first primary in the nation, and that's by by law. Their state law um, says we, we want to make sure that we're the first. And then I guess the Democratic National Committee... Mm-hmm took that away from or tried to this year. No, no, no. We're going to have the first one in South Carolina and then in Nevada, you know, February 3rd and February 6th. And New Hampshire said, screw it. We'll move it up to yep. January 23rd. And and now the Democratic Party's telling them, well, then your, your votes aren't going to count or your delegates may not count. Very interesting. Very interesting. And also of a piece, what's been going on in Texas where there's yes. uh, simmering brouhaha between uh, the federal authorities and state authorities who are trying to get some kind of a grip uh, on the porously open border. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of like you're getting to the point where these states are, are on the verge of saying the dread word, you know, the word we're not supposed to say out loud. Yeah, it's, and in fact, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. The Supreme Court yesterday apparently ruled on the part of the Biden administration, nope, you can you can uh, take down whatever Constantina wire or whatever Constantina wire or whatever barriers Texas had put up. Yeah. That, that sure sounds like uh, what, whatever agreement the states and the federal government have had between them doesn't seem to be honored by at least one side. Well, sure. And as I understand it, I wish I could remember the exact verbiage, but I think one of the foundational uh, obligations that's actually written into the Constitution as far as the federal government concer- is concerned is to protect the nation's borders. Isn't that right? Yeah, I believe so. 
And it's very clear that that's not happening. It's very clear that they're letting anybody who wants to essentially just wander across the border, which is just another example of anarcho-tyranny being the idea that you and I as American citizens are at a disadvantage relative to people who aren't even citizens. We are expected to abide by the jot and tittle of every last law, including seatbelt laws. But somebody who just wanders across the border could just come in and have a good time and avail themselves of all the great things this country has to offer and not have to worry about abiding by those pesky laws that we have to obey. And I'm typically, a, I'm an open borders kind of guy. I prefer open borders, but um, I have to concede the number of military age men, particularly Chinese and Middle Eastern and in some cases African, it seems like there's a lot more people. It's not just, you know, Pablo and his family trying to come across mm-hmm. to it for a better life in America. Um, the, the, the demographic that seems to be finding its way across our borders in greater and greater numbers looks more and more like an invasion. Granted, they're not in uniform or carrying weapons, but um, certainly it, it, it makes you wonder, why is it so many young men of military age? Well, yeah, there's that, and then there's the philosophical aspect. As a libertarian, I'm with you. In principle, I believe that people have a right to pursue better lives, and I'm all for that. I understand Pablo and his family wanting to come over to work, and as such, I don't have an issue with that. However, uh, I think it's, it's, it's naive to the point of foolishness to, um, to have that on the one hand and on the other to have the welfare state and to have uh, limitless um, burdens to be borne by American taxpayers. You know, for example— uh, your community gets uh, uh, an influx of the children of these immigrants, as they're called, these illegal aliens. And guess who gets to pay for that? We do. And I'm not a hard-hearted man, but I have a limit to how much I can pay. Yeah. Most people do. you know. And I don't think it's unreasonable to want to put your, your, your own family's uh, safety and security above that of random strangers, limitless numbers of them, who just come over the border and then somehow acquire the power to fleece your pockets. Well, I know Texas Governor Greg Abbott says this is not over by a long shot, but, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not wishing for, you know, I don't want to see a, a military clash between the Texas National yeah. Guard and, and uh, you know, the federal government, but at what point are states going to draw the line? Sure. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want that either. You know, I don't think any sane person desires a violent outcome if it can be avoided. What I would like to see, the outcome that I prefer, though, uh, is decentralization and the breakup of this unitary state that we have, which is what we have. You know, it's the United States singular now, not plural, as it was when the country was founded and, and states were largely autonomous and had a great degree of sovereignty. That's out the window. They're now just administrative districts of the, of the federal government. And I think it would be far better for freedom if states were much more independent, even outright sovereign, because then – there would be an alternative to this centralized tyranny. You know, it would be much more difficult for one state to impose some kind of a socialist utopia on its people if those people could look across the border of their state at the next one and say, hey, that place is free. I'm going over there. It's the same dynamic that, that brought down the old Soviet Union and uh, all of its satellite states back in the 80s. Here, here. Let's shift gears for a moment. Uh, let's talk about uh, cold weather and EVs. You had an article posted <laughs> yeah. this morning. Sound, it is not looking good for the electric vehicle market. No, uh, I, I've said before that I think there's a very interesting corollary between the, the sickness psychosis that we endured for three years and this EV fever. They're both kind of mental derangement syndromes. And they began to wane uh, after about Two years, And that's what's happening with the EV thing. The bloom has come off the rose. People are realizing 
that EVs have a lot of problems, uh, just like lockdowns, masks, and vaccines did. And that is reflected in the latest uh, earnings data of Tesla, and not just Tesla, but all of them. Their earnings are, are, are tumbling by dramatic double-digit numbers because people aren't buying them anymore, you know, and they're having trouble making fleet sales. For example, Tesla uh, had a, a big deal going with Hertz, and Hertz had such problems with their EV fleet that they had decided to get rid of them all and, and return to having normal cars that you can actually drive instead of having to obsess over how far you can drive and how long it's going to take you to charge it up. So, you know, we may have finally crossed the Rubicon with this EV stuff as the reality gen- begins to just percolate to the general population. And people begin to look at it and, and realize this isn't for me and not only become hesitant, but become obdurate about not buying into EV fever. Well, it seems like the uh, the cold weather particularly has has helped a lot of people understand something you have talked about. I think last year you were actually warning about the danger with the EV in cold weather is it's like having a leak in your gas tank. That charge is going to dissipate yep. overnight noticeably. Yeah, you know, it's not just an inconvenience when it's minus 10 degrees outside and uh, your EV has lost almost all of its range and now you can't charge it because it's too cold to charge it because the battery's thermal management system can't keep up with keeping the battery warm enough to be charged. And now you're stuck, shivering to death, potentially literally, at a Walmart parking lot somewhere outside of Chicago. That, you know, that's not generally something most people want a part of. And particularly, they don't want to spend fifty or $60,000 for the privilege. Well, you know, if I wasn't a believer before, which, you know, I, I, I didn't take a lot of convincing, but this, this to me seems to cement it. it. It could be fun as a novelty, but, but for a serious, you know, means of transportation, um, an EV is just a non-starter. Well, that's just it. And they had to push it, didn't they? Just like with the so-called vaccines. Uh, instead of putting it out there and uh, letting the facts determine whether this was a good or a bad thing, uh, they knew it was a bad thing, so they decided to push it because that's what always happens with bad things. If something's good, it sells itself. If EVs were a, a better option, you know, meaning they, they, they were cheaper to, to buy and to own, they were more convenient to own, none of this stuff would be necessary. People would say, yeah, sign me up. I'll take one of those. But the fact is they're none of those things. And in addition to that, there are a lot of things about them that are very daunting problems. And as people become aware of these things, understandably, they just don't want any part. Now, the tragedy is they've practically destroyed the the regular car industry, and it's going to take years to recover at this point, even if everything were to stop and change around right now. Okay, hold that thought. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. If you look at my show notes today at thebrianheidshow.com, you will find a link to Eric's website. When we come back, we're going to talk about the absent economy car. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. By the way, Eric, I got to tell you, I, I enjoyed your write up on the 2024 Honda Pilot, only because yep. my wife and I, we drive a 2016 Honda Pilot. And uh, it was just kind of fun to, to read a little bit about the whole, um, not quite a minivan, but not quite an SUV. I think you you, uh, you captured very well the experience of, uh, of what it is to have one of these. And by the way, with all the snow we've had in the last couple of weeks, that all-wheel drive has been more than oh, welcome yeah. in getting us around. 
Yeah, and one of the things that I particularly like about that vehicle is the brilliant V6 that's in it, and that you used to be able to get in the Accord. Unfortunately, you can't anymore, but that engine is one of the finest engines that's been made over the last 30 years. Uh, it's a 200,000-mile engine easily with any kind of proper care, and that alone is a very sound reason for getting a new pilot. All right. Now I want to shift gears and talk about economy cars. I, I was really mm-hmm. interested in the article that uh, that you posted the other day about the absent economy car because what really caught my eye was you used the image of an old Datsun B210. Man, yep. I haven't seen one of those for a while. Yeah, well, we haven't seen economy cars for a while either. You notice nobody talks about that anymore. You hear about entry-level cars, but that's an entirely different thing. BMW has entry-level models, so does Mercedes. <laughs> You know, the, the, the distinction is important. An economy car was an inexpensive car. It was a basic car. Uh, it was a car that generally didn't have luxury features like air conditioning, power windows, power locks, electric defrost, uh, electric seats, uh, a good stereo, and all of those things. And for that reason, it was inexpensive. You know, you could pick up a brand new uh, Datsun B210 back in the early 80s for the equivalent of about 16000 bucks in today's money. There's nothing you can buy new that costs that, that that's that's available for that kind of money, and there's a reason why. It's because all these luxury features, things that used to be considered luxury features, have been made standard, even in the so-called entry-level vehicles. And of course, there's all the cost of government. And there was an interesting report out the other day. Uh, the government's own numbers say that uh, the cost of various safety mandates have added a minimum of two thousand dollars to the base price of any new car you buy. Wow. And it's not necessarily stuff that we were asking for. It's it's stuff that was being mandated, whether you want it or not. Well, mandated and also just included, like I, as a side uh, side um, facet of this, this advanced safety technology you keep hearing about. I don't know anybody who has said I want that and I would pay extra for that. Yet it's been made standard equipment in, in literally every new car. You know, I test drive them every week, and there isn't a single one of them that it doesn't come come with any longer. And that's a curious thing. It's as if they're anticipating mandates. And in fact, that's exactly what it is. You know, we, we've talked about the kill switch that's coming along in 2026, which means a way to disable the car for the car to disable itself. That's really what all this advanced safety and, and driver assistance technology is all about. So they're already getting ahead of the curve and putting the stuff in the cars uh, in anticipation of that. Oh, man. <laughs> just a just another reason why you know you you've convinced me that I want I want to keep my older cars running as long as possible because I, I don't want that that level of control. Me either. You know, I was humming along the other day uh, in my old truck, and I just put a nice new custom exhaust on it, uh, courtesy of my lift that I got that we talked about last week. And I was so happy to be driving it, not only because uh, of its uh, absence of advanced safety technologies, but because it's not an EV. I was supposed to have gotten a Mercedes EV to drive that week, but Mercedes has excommunicated me. I no longer get Mercedes press cars because they don't like the way that I've been talking and writing about EVs. Interesting. Well, I would wear that as a badge of honor. That's what you get for speaking the truth. I do, and I've actually decided to go public with it. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to air dirty laundry if I can avoid it, but I think this is relevant because it's not just about me. Uh, it's about corporate attitudes, and so... I published a long article about it, including the verbatim text of some of the correspondence that I had back and forth with Mercedes about the matter. So anybody who's interested in that uh, can find it on the site. It's called Mercedes and Me. Wow. 
Now, talk to me for a moment about uh, affordable trucks. I, I cannot remember yep. who the manufacturer was. Someone had posted a picture on X yesterday about, yep. uh, you know, why can't we have this? And it was, it was uh, I think it's a Chinese-made truck. I don't remember, but... Yeah. You know, about we're talking about a twelve thousand dollar vehicle, and they're like, why mm-hmm. can't we have something like this instead of the eighty thousand dollar deluxe mm-hmm. King Ranch? Blah blah blah. You know, it, <laughs> there, there's just no, there's there's really no uh, no scale of affordability here. Well, there's two reasons or two words I should say: federal government and the vehicle that you referenced. Ironically, is made by General Motors, their subsidiary in China. Uh, a little pickup, and it's very cool. It has uh, fold down bed walls. So you lay the bed walls down, and now you've got this big flat loading surface, which would be super convenient, wouldn't it, oh, yeah. uh, to haul various items? Yeah, uh, but you can't get it here. And the reason you can't get it here or any of the other vehicles that are like it here, again, is because of the, the impossibility from the manufacturer's point of view of complying with all of the various regulations, which make it effectively impossible to offer a vehicle like that for sale. Here's another example. You don't even have to go to the Chinese for this. In, in Australia, you can buy a brand-new V8-powered Toyota Land Cruiser for $40,000. Holy cow. That's not even, it, you can't get anything like that here for anywhere near that amount of money. Unbelievable. I, I, just, I have hope that uh, one day it shifts and these things become affordable or available. But uh, short of a total dismantling of uh, much of the uh, federal uh, bureaucratic, uh, you know, administrative state, I just don't see it happening. Well, actually, I think there's hope that it may happen because awareness is dawning. I think uh, if people for many years had no idea uh, what they were being deprived of, nor uh, the evil motives behind it. I don't know whether you followed this story, but it's come out that the federal government deliberately fudged the range estimates for EVs. You know, in ter- you know you'll hear the numbers. This thing will go 120 miles per gallon equivalent and stuff like that. Right. Well, they use their own internal formula to make it look much more attractive than it is in fact. In other words, they cheated. They deliberately cheated, and they have caused immense harm. And yet, at the same time, nothing's happening. And juxtapose that against what they did, the federal government, the Volkswagen, for its so-called cheating on the certification test for its diesel engines. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Oh, Yeah. Well, we can't accuse them of having no standards. They just have double standards, apparently. Yeah, well, people have, you know, one thing about the last several years, the degree, the extent of the pervasive corruption, and it's not just corruption, the malignant intent of these people has now become so blatant, so obvious that it's, it's I think it's taken on a momentum of its own, and it's now at the point where something's got to give. It just can't continue this way. So, Eric, uh, we've got just a couple of minutes here, but I, I wanted to, mm-hmm. to just kind of touch base with you um, as far as what what are you seeing in, in terms of uh, whether it's it's geopolitical or, or national news that, that's got your your attention? Anything that uh, that people mm-hmm. should be paying closer attention to uh, what, for instance, disease X? I know you're yeah. hearing some buzz about that. Yeah. What's uh, what's your take? Well, I think they're just letting you know that, letting us know that uh, they're champing at the bit for another excuse to uh, hystericize uh, people getting sick of whatever so that they can use that as the excuse to lock us down, terrorize us, and all of those other things. Everybody knows that. The thing I'm most worried about right now, frankly, well, there's two things. One is what we're not hearing about in terms of Kiev. I mean, there's nothing in the news anymore about Ukraine. True. Which means that things are going very badly in Ukraine for, uh, you know, for the West, that is, uh, for the governments that are propping up the Kievian regime. And the other thing is this awful slaughter that's going on 
uh, over in Israel in the Middle East, where my understanding is that, that they've, they've now killed something like 20,000 Palestinians, and it's getting out of hand. And that sort of thing bodes ill for us, I think, in the, in the months and years ahead. Here, here. Well, Eric, as always, great to have you on the program. And uh, for, for those who aren't familiar with your website, uh, give us a 30-second sketch of what they'll find when they arrive there. Well, sure. It's epautos.com. I call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site because, as far as I know, it's the only libertarian gearhead site. And you'll find everything there, ranging from the political stuff that we talk about to new car reviews to old car articles to uh, just gearhead stuff about how to fix and keep up your vehicles. All right. Again, Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, great to visit with you as always. I, I, you are a, a voice of reason out there in a sea of irrationality. Please keep up the good work. You know I will. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, QuiltAndSew.com, and IronsightBrewingCompany.com. If you're a coffee drinker, you really should consider clicking on that link, ironsightbc.com, and uh, maybe getting yourself set up with a really nice subscription coffee service. This is my friend John Harvey's brainchild, and it's, seriously, he says, from the roaster to your cup in less than 72 hours. It's got some very cool swag, too, but look, if you're going to start your day with a morning cup of coffee, this may be the way to do it. IronsightBrewingCompany.com. You might want to mention that, uh, you know, you're checking them out because I pointed you in their direction. So if you're serious about maintaining your mental health, I came across a really remarkable bit of advice. This is from Paul Rosenberg. Not surprising. Paul's got a great take on things. His advice is everyone needs to ditch the status quo now. Now, here's what he says. He says, I want to urge as many people as possible for the sake of their mental health to step as far from the status quo as possible and as soon as possible. The fact is that the government, academic, media, corporate complex, hereafter known as the establishment, has become a font of brain poison and in fact has no other way to sustain itself. Now Paul says, please bear in mind that it has been demonstrated properly that Being under sustained fear is the equivalent to brain damage, that watching the news is damaging to one's mental health, and that social media is not only deeply addictive, but causes depression and worse. In fact, he gives an example here to illustrate that the establishment delivers not just bad information, but brain poison. A recent article in The Guardian, a major UK newspaper, responded to the protests of German farmers by declaring repeatedly, the farmers are refusing to pay for their pollution. Now, Paul says the sanctimonious writer of those words expects farmers to grow immense amount of food while never involving fields, fertilizers, or machines. This post and many like it are the ravings of neo-intellectuals who've never built anything but who get ahead by tearing things down. 
reality is a non-factor in their pronouncements. The people who accept such ideas, then, are sowing unreality into a brain that struggles constantly to recognize reality. And so he says, I think it's quite fair to call this poison. I have to agree. That's, you know, you want to tr- we want to poison the public sentiment against the farmers. Well, they're not paying for their pollution. Because that's all farmers provide, you understand, pollution. Now, enjoy your dinner. I mean, your bugs. <laughs> okay, thanks. Back to the article. Paul says, please try to grasp that the people promoting this kind of anti-reality will, if they can, destroy whatever stands in their way. These are the same people who wanted to deny medical care to anyone who dared disagree with them and were happy if someone who didn't comply with them died. Here's how serious this is. He says, these people have already demonstrated their willingness for non-compliers to die. This is the same psychology that drove the Inquisitors and their heretic hunts. The names and titles are new, but the pathology is the same. These people operate not by reasoning with you, but by applying social pain. Their job is to sow the terror of being shamed, rejected, and punished. And their floggings are to be delivered not by policemen, but in a far more intimate and effective way by employers, co-workers, family, neighbors, Facebook groups, and so on. The present situation is that one establishment narrative after another has crashed and burned over the last several years. What what remain usable to the establishment then are dogma, outrage, and a hard disconnect from reality. Social pain must be well applied, or well enough applied rather, that most people never refer to anything outside their sphere. And he says, that's not just my opinion, however much they may deny this. Their actions belie their words. So what's the solution? Well, Paul Rosenberg says the solution to this disaster is not to fight and destroy. That would preserve the establishment. The solution, rather, is to treat it as pollution and walk away from it. Now, what exactly does that mean? Now, he actually has a newsletter called Parallel Society that you can subscribe to, and they they cover this in, in some detail. But he says, we can all start by giving the establishment no respect and no benefit of the doubt. We can call them, as St. Augustine put it, a band of robbers. And on top of that, we can speak the truth and let the shamers take their shots at us. Then we can smile at them and continue. It is time for all of us, for all people of goodwill, to construct a society that isn't polluted, a society worth living in. Yes, we need to walk away from the carnival of shaming, hate, and destruction. But more crucially, he says, we need to build a better way. Now. This one really struck me as as being not only true, but especially timely. I'm watching this play out right now in my home state of Idaho. There's a, there's a very small clack of a very noisy, and I, I assume they're leftists by by the um, policies that they espouse and the things that outrage them. They 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 are triggered by things that tend to trigger you know the hard left people, the the, the people who are either Marxist or Maoist in their thinking. And oh, it's so interesting to watch how how they'll just they'll find one person to cling on to and and it's just this endless demand for it's a struggle session why won't you come to your struggle session why won't you come and they try to drag other people in they try to drag in people off the street come won't you denounce this criminal this thought criminal here this thought criminal there it, it is extremely toxic and it's also extremely delusional but 
we're talking people who sadly have slipped through the event horizon of rationality and or of irrationality rather they're they're gone so arguing with them on the internet is really not uh, is or on social media it's not going to provide any kind of benefit and that's hard look i'll i'll admit to you i struggle with this because when i see people acting out like that there's a part of me the the white knight that uh, wants to give them a rhetorical backhand, you know, kind of put them in their place. Shut up, you! you know? But it's not productive. And I think Paul Rosenberg has the right idea here. Look, it's pollution. Walk away from it. Now, the difference here is if you, if you spilled something, if you caused, if you littered, if you made the mess, you have to clean it up. If it's not your mess, don't. There are people who exist for the purpose of applying social pain. That doesn't mean you have to accept it. In fact, I, I would uh, caution if you're worried, well, they may come after me or it may negatively impact my business. What you need to keep in mind is that their opinions only matter if you care about what they say. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't care what, what anybody says. I'm callous toward everybody. There are some people whose opinions I do value. And if they tell to me, if they tell me, Brian, you are out of line, I'm going to listen to them, even if it's painful. But it's because I know that uh, they're doing this out of a sense of, I wouldn't say something if I didn't love you, as opposed to, gotcha. You see the difference? I don't know about you. I'm I'm willing to accept some discomfort. I'm willing to accept pain and inconvenience in order to separate myself from such individuals. It's really, it's powerful when he talks about how, you know, we've seen what these people are willing to do in terms of they have demonstrated their willingness to destroy non-compliers. They cheer when non-compliers die. COVID was unfortunately one of those great tests that really brought out the true nature of some people's hearts. And that's not to say that they can't change. Some people actually have realized. I, Sasha Stone is actually one of those writers. And I don't know that she was really rabid about, you know, if you, if you didn't take the jab, you should die. But she was, she was marching with, you know, that, that hard left for a long time and really believed, no, 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 this is true. We've got to, we've got to stop these people who are not, you know, listening to us and, and obeying what we tell them to do or what we tell them to think. She came to her senses and since has become just a remarkable resource. So it's possible for it to happen. I mean, come on. The Apostle Paul, you know, once stood by and held people's colts while they stoned the other apostles to death. He had a change of heart. Likewise, I, I always hold out hope that, you know, people can change and they do change. But for those who won't, you don't need to feel any shame for putting distance between them and you. And I think the people who were eager to deny medical care to anybody who disagreed with them and who actually cheered when, when they died, you know, when, when non-compliers, you know, died, they just, uh, that's, that's the sign of a really small soul. You don't want to keep company with such people. Now, I realized just yesterday I was talking on the show about this uh, journalist who was, uh, you know, endlessly heckling Novak Djokovic, you know, for not taking the jab you know, in order to participate in various tennis tournaments around the world. And that journalist passed away suddenly, presumably, you know, from 
some unexpected weird medical emergency that just arose. And I did remark on the irony, but you'd understand, I'm not celebrating it as like, yeah, he got what was coming to him. I think it's a tragedy. I think it's sad when people are crushed by the enormity of their bad choices. So yeah, we gotta have some empathy and not celebrate. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Two articles I'd like to point you toward in this final segment. And uh, Lenore Skenazy, one of my favorite writers, because she is all about uh, helping parents overcome that tendency to helicopter over your children. Oh, I just want to make them safe. Have we got the security detail for our trip to the park? Ready, you know, for the trip to the park? Okay. Everybody, radio comms, let's check. I mean, it's we, we take our kids out sometimes, and it's it's just... It's ridiculous how we smother them. She's got some really good, solid advice. She comes down on the side of freedom. And and this article from her really hit home for me. The headline is, Toronto bans tobogganing and fun. Lenore says, talk about a slippery slope. Toronto recently erected tobogganing is not allowed warnings on 45 hills around the city. Now, the reason for these bans is right there on the sign. Hazards such as trees, stumps, rocks, rivers, or roads make this hill unsafe. So apparently it's only safe for humans to enjoy an activity in nature if there's an area where there's little evidence of nature or humans. And apparently at the bottom of the signs, there's a URL kids can punch into their smartphones to find one of the 27 hills in the city, population 2.9 million, where tobogganing is expressly allowed. But her kids, if the kids are anything like the rest of us, she says, once they've started Googling the information, who needs a toboggan or friends or legs? Goodbye, cold world. Hello, warm iPhone glow. See, the problem is the city of Toronto is just too risk averse. That's according to Rob Brown, a lifelong Torontonian and dad of two who's literally a risk advisor for a financial institution. He says, I recall tobogganing as a kid. Sometimes there were minor scrapes and bruises, but my brothers and I learned independence. But now there are too many nanny rules aimed at making the world so safe. And especially kids, they're not allowed to to, people and especially kids are not allowed to do anything outdoors, but sit on a bench. Isn't that something? I mean, I can see this. I can actually see these these safety Karens, for lack of a better term. How can we have these kids out there? We call it sledding, okay, or tubing. And and look, I'm not going to pretend that there's not risk. My daughter went tubing a few weeks ago with some friends up in the South Hills. And, you know, it was, and, and I told her, I said, hey, it's some of the most fun I've ever had. At the same time, I can't recall very many tubing or sledding, you know, trips that I went on that somebody didn't come home injured. Whiplash or, you know, cracked rib or concussion or things like that. But it's just because we were having so much fun. There was risk involved. But we were willing to face that risk. And if we saw somebody really get a good run and go flying off the course and into the parking lot, okay, we learned from that. Okay, don't take your tube that high up the mountain. That's that's too much. Isn't that something, though? Toronto banning tobogganing. There are risks here. Here, sit on your cell phone. Just just do what's safe. I mean, I can imagine those Karens looking at people out there sledding. Where's the licensing? 
Why, why is there no organization? People aren't even, they're not even lining up orderly and taking turns. Look, look at these people. They, they probably think they're having a good time. For such is the mindset of such Karens. All right, I'm going to shift gears here because I want to share with you the article of the day. And I hope you understand this in the spirit that I intended when I say, if the prospect of Donald Trump being the Republican presidential nominee doesn't give you equal measures of, of hope, as well as unease, you're not thinking about it hard enough. And Jeffrey Tucker wonders, will we ever get the truth? He says, Donald Trump will certainly get the Republican nomination. With that, the issue of truth and honesty about what happened on March 13th of 2020, this is when the lockdowns were announced, and and beyond that, he says, will not likely be pushed by the executive branch, even if Trump wins. No one in his circles wants to talk any of this subject. Even if every bit of the current national crisis, health, economics, cultural, societal, traces to those grim days of lockdown and the ensuing disaster. Tucker says we are very far from gaining anything like transparency on precisely what happened. In fact, the situation today is quite the opposite. Again, Trump's team long ago accepted a tacit agreement to make the issue go away. This was initially in the interest of securing the nomination. Never admit error to your voters. But it soon became an accepted doctrine in those circles. Trump's opponent wants it this way, too, of course. Except perhaps to say that Trump didn't lock down soon enough. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization has announced every intention to use the last experience as a template for the next. The national media has no regrets pushing wild panic. The tech companies show no remorse for unrelenting censorship, which continues to this day. Pharma has more power than ever, and so do the armies of bureaucratic enforcers at all levels of government. Academia is out, too. Here, administrators closed their campuses and forced pointless shots on returning students. They're all culpable. So he says, let's take a step back and ask a fundamental question. When will truth emerge to the point that your average intellectual in in a public space will admit that this whole thing was catastrophic for everything we call civilization? We know the answer involves time, but how much time? And how much in the way of effort will it require to get the reckoning we need before the healing we require takes place? Jeffrey Tucker says, This morning my mind drifted back to the days after 9-11 when George Bush, the George Bush administration decided to use the public fury over the attacks in New York and Washington to deploy a war that the president's father began much earlier but did not complete. The Bush administration decided on regime change in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, Jeff says a small minority of people, myself among them, objected that these wars would do nothing to realize justice for 9-11. Indeed, they would cause calamity at home and abroad. Americans would lose liberty, security, and many lives would be lost. Overthrowing Saddam and the Taliban without a viable replacement for each would unleash some unpredictable chaos nationalizing security at home would create a bureaucratic monster at home that would eventually be turned on Americans themselves. How well we recall the way we dissidents were shouted down, called every name. The most absurd was coward, as if our opinions on this grave matter were formed by nothing other than our unwillingness to type cheers as others fought and died. And sure enough, all of our predictions, which were not hard to make, came true. The U.S. wrecked what was the most liberal and secular country in the region, while the war against the Taliban ended with them taking charge again. At some point, the U.S. even facilitated the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya for whatever reason. 
no one could have anticipated a massive refugee crisis in Europe that would destabilize every government and give rise to massive public anger and distrust. Some seven years after these invasions, candidate Ron Paul was on the stage at a Republican debate and denounced the whole thing. He was booed and then smeared and then shouted down and hated. But that seemed to kick off a rethinking. Eight years after that, Donald Trump said something similar, and his comments elicited the same reaction, except that he then won the nomination. That was 2016. Since then, there seems to have been a gradual dying out of the war hawks who take pride in their wild adventure. He says, just this morning, writing in the New York Times, Ross Duthat tossed off the following paragraph without much of a thought, even burying it in an otherwise uneventful column. Quote, the Iraq war and the slower, longer failure in Afghanistan didn't just begin the unraveling of the Pax Americana. They also discredited the American establishment at home, shattering the center right and undermining the center left, dissolving confidence in politicians, bureaucracies, and even the military itself. While the war's social efforts lingered in the opioid epidemic and the mental health crisis. End quote. You see how he writes this as if nothing is controversial? He's merely relaying what everybody knows today. Somewhere between 2001 and 2024, unthinkable thoughts became conventional wisdom. There was never a big announcement, never a serious commission, never an apology or some kind of big reckoning or admission of error. What was once radical became mainstream, gradually and then all at once. It's not even clear when this happened. Eight years ago? A year ago? It's not clear. Regardless, nearly a quarter of a century later, it's now conventional wisdom that the most popular war policy in the U.S. at the time was a catastrophe by every measure. Everyone today knows for sure the whole thing was backed by deliberate lies. Not that anyone involved will ever be held accountable. George Bush himself is still riding high, never forced to recant his views or actions. None of the top players have paid any price at all. They moved on to greater fame and riches than before. Now everyone just quietly says it was a bad idea all along. So what can we learn from this? Well, certainly we can take away that the COVID experience that precipitated the greatest crisis since the Civil War will take a very long time to deal with in an honest way. Will it take 25 years? Jeffrey Tucker says, I seriously doubt it. But maybe this is what we can hope for. He says, picture a pot boiling with a tight lid. It's being held on by ruling class elites in pharma, tech, and media, along with myriad government agents who don't want to be found out. But the fire is still burning and the water is boiling. Something will give. And it, will, it could be sooner rather than later. What we will discover once it all comes out is awesome to consider. If we only have a fraction of the truth now, the full truth will be mind-blowing. But he says we cannot wait a lifetime. That fire must burn. I got a link to this in today's show notes. Show notes for January 23rd, 2024 at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.